Hey, good morning, everyone. You know, uh, Mark is so much about Mother's Day, but you know, I want to give a shout out to the men because without the men in this room, there is no mothers, all right? So, Brock, on. Yeah, some of you guys are clapping under the chair with me. All right, all right. Guys, it's good to see you today. Listen, I, I am at this place. I, I cannot believe it's Mother's Day. And it's not because like, I didn't get my mom a gift or something. Like, oh, no, no. I mean, it's, it's like I can't believe it is, what is today, the 13th of May? It's May 13th. It was in September that these, these kind of why questions started coming on our radar here at Fellowship of Faith, that, that we started going through, through just uh, passage after passage after passage in the Bible of kind of unpacking these. And, and, and we are at the last one today. Not the last time that we're going to ever wrestle with why questions. Not the last time, certainly, that you will ever ask a why question. But the last of our run through the school year of looking intently and intentionally at, at samplings of why questions. Um, that we find the people of God asking God. And that, quite honestly, we find God asking people just as much. And, and there's one that's landed today that I want to show, that I want to share with you, but but I want to do it a little bit differently. I want to actually take you into the text, and I want you to follow along with me, and I want to try to help unpack what's going on around this 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 particular why question that we're going to see, because I think it is in the journey of this that things really start to come to life. So under your chairs you're going to find these Bibles. And I just want to invite you to take one out. And I want to invite you to open up to this Old Testament book called Isaiah. Now, if you don't know where that's at, Isaiah 50. And if you don't know where that's at, it's it's a long enough book and it's kind of in the middle that if you do that, you probably will get lucky. Um, But if not, just use your table of contents. It'll help steer you in, and, and, and you'll find it easy enough. But I want to show you this, this, this peculiar little why question that's embedded in Isaiah 50. We're going to look at about three verses here. Please just follow along with me. Let's see what it has to say. This is what the Lord says. So God is speaking, Right? This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Where is it? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called... Why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Did I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Okay, moment of honesty. As we looked at those three verses together, did you find your mind traveling afar just a little bit? Right? I like the Bible. 
that should come across as a real no-brainer. But it's really not as self-evident as you'd think. I'm, I, I just, I like it. I like digging into it and, 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 and going beyond just like a cool catchphrase or an inspirational verse. I mean, I like getting into the substructure of it, following the arguments, getting into the mind and the context of what the writers have to say. And, and, and truth be told, I found myself in the minority in this. That what I assumed was true for most people isn't actually the case, even in church circles and among Christians, that, that most people just kind of really don't like it. Because first, well, it involves reading. So that knocks like half of us off, like right off the bat. And then you come to a passage like we have here in Isaiah, right? And okay, so it's in the Old Testament. Well, this is getting worse, Right? And then it's not just in the Old Testament, it's in like the prophet section of the Old Testament. And it's not just in the prophet section, it's like in the longest stinking prophet that the Bible holds, right? And okay, and really just straight up, did you have this moment where I ask you to turn to Isaiah 50 and you're like, uh-huh. All right, so you do it, right? And then you turn there and then you like look at the page and it is like poetry, as far as the eye can see. And you just keep turning the pages and it's poetry, poetry, more and more poetry that goes on and on and on. No one likes poetry, right? And so here we have what's supposed to be this life-giving, life-affirming, rejuvenating message of God, which we have to read in the Old Testament, in a prophet, and poetic verse that goes on and on and on. And did you find yourself just a little bit as we were looking at those passages, getting maybe struck or sparked by a little phrase or a little word, but then it went there, leaving you here without any really sense of a clue of what it had to say? Like, like, seriously, am I alone in this? Or is this like you're like normal for you in reading the Bible? If it is, you're not alone. And it's okay. But what I want to do with you today is take something which would ordinarily just be left by itself, thank you very much, and help you dig in to what God actually is trying to say. Now, in the midst of this, we found this provocative little question. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? What I want to do is figure out why this question is being asked to begin with. And hopefully by getting into the author's mind and getting into the poetry of what God has to say, see something come to life that we might just otherwise miss. Now, what's fascinating about this is with a little investigation, you'll discover quickly that this is a question not that people are asking God but that God is asking people. 
The picture you need to get in your mind is God in heaven looking down going, I came. Where were you? I called. Why didn't you answer me? Have you ever asked God questions like those? I was here, God. Where were you? I called out to you, God. I prayed. And you didn't answer. Strange, isn't it? That God is the one seen asking this question. To you and me. Now, what makes digging into this hard is that Isaiah assumes a few things. By the time that this question comes off his lips, he assumes a few things. Let me just scare you here a little bit. Here's what he thinks you know. One, he thinks you know Israel's story. And Israel's story is kind of like code word for saying the Old Testament. He assumes you know the narrative, the, the history, the journey. He assumes you know the interaction of God with his people. That names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob carry weight and significance, but also trajectory and direction. He assumes you know the sordid history between God and his people and all the stories as they played out and all the significance and meanings that they bring to play. He just assumes that you know this. He assumes that you know the current situation of his day. That you know what he's actually talking into in the life and times when he wrote these pages. Things like exile and banishment. Things like the, the, the discipline and punishment of God, but also the sins of the people. And finding themselves in places like Assyria and Babylon, wondering where God is every step of the way. He assumes you know and feel this. He assumes you know what he's already said. That you're not just like kind of picking up at like episode 50 in the TV series, like for the first time, but that you've already watched episodes 1 through 49 in his book and know the things that have built up to this climactic kind of question of what God has to say. And he assumes that you identify that you kind of find yourself, even though you're not in that time and place, identifying with Israel and with God in different sorts of ways. What makes this so hard when you come into the Old Testament to a prophet like Isaiah, immersed in poetry, trying to see what it has to say, is that he just assumes, he thinks you know all of this, coming in, which of course you don't, right? Some of us to varying degrees, of course, but for most of us, we just don't, which is going to make this exceedingly hard. So what I'm going to try and do is rather than unpack every single illusion and reference going on in the poetry, because I tell you, it drips with it. It trips with meaning and significance. What I'm going to try to do is give you a satellite view of what's going on in this passage. What's going on in this passage into which God speaks this question, which is something he wants us to listen to every step of 
the way. Now, Isaiah 50, verse 2, where were you? Why was there no one? It's actually part of a larger unit of thought that goes all the way back to 49, verse 14. If you still have this open or flagged, um, I encourage you to flip back there. And if you don't, well, um, burn some more calories and open it up again. Um, it goes back to 49, verse 14, and there's this, this flow of thought, this picture that Isaiah wants you to keep in mind that we tap into here that's going to carry on all the way through chapter 50. Now you might go, well, why does it start at 49, verse 14? Why doesn't it just start with a new chapter at 50? Well, I don't know. Because people who put the chapters and verses in later on were imperfect. We'll leave it at that, which should be a warning. To never let these dividers, these headers, these chapters, these verses get in your way of reading. Do you realize that like Jesus never had these chapter headings? Do you realize that Martin Luther never even had the verses numbered? These are recent inventions. And I don't want to kick him in the teeth. I'm glad they're there. I mean, can you imagine if I said, yeah, let's open up to Isaiah together and you go where? And I go, it's kind of near the end. I mean, addresses are a good thing. But sometimes they can artificially break up the thought and the flow of what the author has to say. So look at me. Look with me. At 49, verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. See, Isaiah is going to invite you to do something. What Isaiah does in this passage is he personifies Israel, who's here called Zion. Zion being the, the, the mountain that the capital city of Jerusalem is kind of built into. He, he personifies Israel, or Zion, as a woman who is alone and in distress. Now, I need to paint a picture for you today for this to make sense. I need you to kind of go with me and get this picture of a woman who is alone and in distress. The backstory goes something like this. I want you to picture a woman who's married, who has kids, and feels utterly trapped. Maybe she finds herself in just kind of a lifeless routine that once upon a time brought her joy, but now just seems to suck every ounce of energy that she has, and she finds herself dragging through a monotony day after day after day. She's found herself fallen out of love with the husband who was once the love of her life. And while she would tell you that she loves her kids, the reality is in the secret places that don't get brought to life, 
She's tired and bored and frustrated and unattached with them. I want you to get this picture of this woman who feels trapped. And what was supposed to bring her joy feels stifling, like a straitjacket, and she can't breathe. And after struggling and trying and moping and, and, and fumbling her way through this, she finally builds up some resolve to do something about it. And what she decides to do is walk away. Because there are so many other attractive options out there. Why am I wasting my few short years stuck with this? And so with a sense of determination, finality, conviction, she walks away. Maybe she just runs. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's someone else she wants to start a new life with. But she goes that way. And her friends come to her and go, what are you doing? She won't hear it. Her family comes to her pleading for her to stay. She just won't hear it. And she casts it all off and walks away. Now only after experiencing the choices that she's made, finding out that the grass, in fact, was not greener on the other side, and finding herself now alone, estranged, alienated, with a trail of hurt and wounds and baggage left behind her, in a place alone. And feeling abandoned. This is the picture Isaiah wants you to keep in your mind. Because what what Isaiah does is he personifies Zion, Israel, as that woman that I just described. Now, this same scenario happens with men as well. All the time. Just in this case, it happens to be a woman, as Isaiah pictures it. It's important to keep in mind, too, that she's not running away because she's abused or being treated cruelly or or harshly or something, that this was her internal crisis by which she walked away. You know, the picture might not be yet strong enough. I think of my brother-in-law. He's a lawyer. With DFS, the Department of Family Services in Indiana, it's their version of DCFS. For almost the last decade, he's had the the immensely unpleasant job of having to insert himself into the lives of families, quite often moms who have been found negligent or abusive and responsible for throwing their families away. 
I'm sure there's no two stories that are exactly alike, but a common scenario is something like this. A woman finds herself pregnant. She wasn't ready. It wasn't planned. She even hasn't really matured yet herself. Or maybe it was planned. In a moment of excitement and, and idealizing the future, she, she dreams of what this family can be, but then reality kind of sets in and it comes crashing and conflicting up against her life situation. And she finds herself wanting the old life, her party life, her friend's life, more than the life with her family with which she's left. She doesn't really have many skills. She doesn't have a degree. There isn't much money. But she's found that guys will pay the rent if she gives certain things. And it becomes this series of boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend. New guy in the house, new guy in the house, new guy in the house. Drugs or alcohol often also have a way of finding their way in. And her kids are left to the devices of whatever might be, often raising themselves by themselves. If you could even explain it in that kind of way. And the neighbors start to notice and the family starts to plead. They bend over backwards trying to make a way, but she just won't listen. And then the state finally steps in. And processes start to go into place. But it still doesn't feel real. It feels like a fantasy. Until that day, she finds herself walking out of the courtroom with her kids taken away. And suddenly, it all starts getting, it all starts getting real. I mean, happy Mother's Day, right? But see, this is the picture that Isaiah has in mind. This is the image you need to keep in your brain. As we read this woman who now finds herself in the aftermath of her choice alone and feeling abandoned. Follow along with me. At verse 14, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But God asks, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Doubtful. But maybe. But though she may forget, I will not forget you. Look, I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. I'm marked with your name. It does not wash away. Your walls are ever before me. Your children, your sons will hasten back. 
Those who laid you waste and helped bring this destruction in your life, they will depart from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around. Your kids, they'll come back. Your sons will gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. That's a weird thing to say. Here's the picture you need to get in your mind. Their artwork will cover your fridge again. The constant reminder of them as a part of your life will adorn your life, your phone, your Facebook wall, your hallways again. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small. Your geographic region, your home will be too small for, for your people, for how many are coming back. And those who devoured you will be far away. The child, the children born during your bereavement will, say, will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, whose kids are these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was alone. Where have they come from? This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'll beckon the Gentiles. I will lift my banner to the peoples. They will carry your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers. Queens, your nursing mothers. They who have raised your kids will bring them back and bow down before you with their faces to the ground. This is the way it will go for you. It's like Israel finds herself from her choices distant and far from God and reaping the consequences of the path she chose. Now finding herself dealing with its reality alone. Accusing God of abandoning her Which brings us to chapter 50, where God says in return, no, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Let me ask you, where is it? Do you know? No, of course you don't because there isn't one. Because he never wrote a certificate of divorce. And send her away. Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Do you know which ones? Of course you don't. Because he didn't do that to you. No, it says because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. Can I rephrase? It was the choices you made, God says. That brought you to this place. It was the choices you made that led you to this place to which God, in utter bewilderment, asks the question I came, I looked for you, I waited for you. 
I fought for you. Where were you? I came. Why was there no one? I called out to you. Why was there no one to answer? It's like on one hand, Zion is going, God, why did you abandon me? To which God is answering, are you kidding me? You're the one who walked away. You divorced me. You abandoned me. You ran away. Can you almost see God in heaven scratching his head? Going, why can't you see this? Why don't you hear? Why don't you understand? Never in all my life have I written you off, nor will I write you off today. Why do you accuse me of abandoning you when you are the one who ran away? See, there's this fascinating passage that, that it's like on kind of repeat. You can almost call it a chorus through the Bible. Let me show you how Jesus puts it. This fascinating passage where he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Which implies something, doesn't it? That when we want to hear Having ears is not enough. Have you ever spoken to someone who clearly has ears? And yet you realized that they have not listened to a single word that you have had to say. Moms, How many conversations have you had with your kids? I mean, the same thing. Hundreds of times. You've rephrased it. You've done it in different contexts. You've created Maxwell House moments. You've done the car thing. You've done the weekend getaways. You've broken out the sock puppets. You know what I'm saying? You have said the same thing in a hundred different ways. And all you get from your kids is... Without hearing a word of what you have to say. You know what I mean? It's odd, isn't it, that just having ears is not enough to hear what someone has to say. Kids, how many times have you been talking to your mom? Maybe your dad. Less likely. How many times have you been talking to a parent of yours and you're actually trying to explain something to them? You know, there's something important to you, something that you actually have insight into, something that you're working through, and you actually are trying to explain it to them, but you can tell from the look in their eyes, despite the fact that they clearly have ears, that they have already made up their mind about what you mean regarding what you're saying and have tuned you out and stopped listening somewhere along the way. 
How many times has God called out to us and explained it in so many different hundreds of ways and despite the fact that he's gifted us with these amazing, miraculous things, we still don't hear a single word of what he has to say. God crying out in heaven. I came. Where were you? I called. Why didn't you answer? Why didn't you? He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus has to say, because you know what? Listening is not quite the same thing as hearing. Listening requires slowing down. Focusing. Giving attention. Allowing curiosity. Listening means actually valuing what someone else might have to say. And Jesus' message to you is listen. There is a God who loves you, who has not abandoned you, who has not written a certificate of divorce with your name, who has not sent you away. For those of you who find yourself mired in the why questions, listen. Take the time and listen to what God actually has to say. And you might find yourself utterly surprised that's all I gotta say